We started this podcast as a simple commitment between Casper and me. Once a week, we would sit in a room and treat Harry Potter as sacred, even if no one showed up. Now, we have 70,000 listeners we never could have imagined. We also now have Maggie, who makes sure that all of our local groups feel supported. We have Megan, who makes sure that we behave with integrity in the world. We have Chelsea, who produces the women of Harry Potter. And we have Ariana, who makes sure that every episode, every live show, everything we put out into the world is done to the highest possible standard. We make sure that we pay all of them a living wage. We are trying to be the change we want to see in the world. We are trying to only use fair trade merchandise products to give health care to all of our employees and pay time off. We are trying to save in order to plant a tree for every flight that we take. And we cannot be the company that every company should be without your support. With 70,000 listeners and 1,300 supporters on Patreon, that means that 2% of you support us on Patreon, and we are so grateful for your support. But we want to make it 3% of our listeners who support us on Patreon, which would mean 2,100 supporters. For $1 a month, you get an extra few minutes of bloopers. That's $1 a month for the feeling of being in the top 3% of our listeners. That level of success would even make Hermione happy. So join us. Be part of the top 3%. Join Casper and me in that room that gets more and more filled the more of you show up. We are so grateful that you are part of this community. I'd have sat in that room with Casper alone gladly, but I love having you here. Chapter 5. The Whomping Willow The end of the summer holidays came too quickly for Harry's liking. He was looking forward to getting back to Hogwarts, but his month at the borough had been the happiest of his life. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. A quick note before we start the show this week. Many of you have already bought your tickets to come and see us live in Cambridge, Massachusetts on January the 24th. Yay! Yay! Thank you so much. We're really, really excited about it. We're adding a little fun note to it. We're launching an essay competition for middle schoolers on our website, harrypottersacredtext.com. So if you're in grade 6, 7, or 8, or love someone who is in grade 6, 7, or 8, get them onto the website and read the instructions on how to take part. It'll be a short response to a Lectio Divina sentence that we'll give you. And we'll announce the winners on the podcast, and we'll also invite a local contestant to come and see us for free with an adult supervisor, potentially a parent, or if you want to be rebellious, Hagrid, to come and watch us at the live show on January 24th. So go to harrypottersacredtext.com and take part. We'll really look forward to reading your responses. I love the month of November because it is my birthday month. And usually I love to host parties. A couple of years ago, I hosted a dressing up, sing along, sound of music party, which was maybe a highlight of my life. And Vanessa even offered to host a birthday party for me this year, which was very sweet. But I said no. 
mostly because this month I turn 30. And I feel like turning 30 is a solemn occasion. I feel like it represents a new decade. And it seems to, at least in my mind, represent a shift from kind of a fun, young 20s adventure time to a decade of taking responsibility for not just for myself and not just for my husband and any potential future children that may join us, but I have a larger responsibility for our society and and for the world in a way that I hadn't really felt before. And so as I think about the nature of responsibility and the way that it's tied up with things that are important but maybe not always fun, I thought about this chapter in The Chamber of Secrets where we see responsibility show up in all sorts of ways that actually aren't boring, that aren't you know, that aren't a downer. And it's making me rethink how I can engage my new responsibilities as an adult in the world. So I'm excited to explore those with you, Vanessa, because I think I'm going to learn something. I think responsibility is really exciting, Casper. There are days where I don't want to get out of bed, but my responsibilities get me out of bed or, you know, a lot of good does come with responsibilities. But I agree with you also that there's a certain mourning as you take on more and more. And I also saw that in this chapter. So I'm excited to talk to you about that. Casper, now that you are contemplating responsibility more seriously, have you contemplated the responsibility of going first in the 30-second recap challenge? (laughs) Not yet, because you're only 29 still. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) Next week, though. Next week, I'll be ready. Okay. On your mark. Get set. So all the Weasleys travel by car. They're running late because people keep forgetting things. They get to the um, King's Cross station and everyone gets onto the platform. And then Ron and Harry try and do it, but they can't get through. And so they're like, oh, my God. So they go out to the garage. No, it's not a garage. It's whatever. They get into the car and they fly all the way to Hogwarts. And the car is like, yay. And then it's like, ah. And so they can't, they nearly can't make it. And then they arrive there and they crash into the Whomping Willow, which starts beating them up. And then they think they've escaped, but it's Snape. And then McGonagall gives them sandwiches and doesn't expel them. They get back to them and everyone cheers. Yes. Ah, wow. Whew, responsibility suits you, my friend. Except I like I say things like they get back to the and everyone <laughs> cheers. And what I want to say is common room. So Casper, you seemed to have been very successful this week because I feel like your sense of responsibility had you use my strategy. I I follow my elders. <laughs> well, because of that, I'm going to try to give some details. Okay. I'm going to try the Casper strategy. The Casper strategy is all about little vignettes that don't make sense in any sort of narrative shape. I'm really excited for this opportunity. Okay. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So all of the kids forget something that's sort of symbolic of them, like Jenny forgets her diary, and I don't know what Percy forgets, but probably something that stuck up his butt, and then they all get to King's Cross Station, and Ron and Harry go last, and they keep bumping into the thing so much so that Hedwig falls and is, like, squawking. And so they're like, oh, my God, we're going to get find out. So they fly the car. They hop into Whomping Willow, Snape, McGonagall, no points taken away, common room, screaming of appreciation. That's my Casper effort. And you have time. <laughs> Ding! Amazing. Thank you. That Amaz- was my impression of you. I loved it. Especially that you were just listing names at the end in no sort of linear way. I really loved switching roles of you being the responsible one and me just getting to do all the fun parts. <laughs> Welcome to my life. Oh my God, this is amazing. You turning 30 is the best thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> So, Casper, the most obvious point to me to talk about responsibility in this chapter 
is the ridiculous moment when Harry and Ron are like, oh, no, we can't get through the barrier to nine and three quarters. Clearly, we should steal the car and fly to Hogwarts ourselves. The lack of responsibility involved in that decision, the lack of ability for them to stop and think for half a second is just astonishing to me. I hate them. I hate them in this moment. They could risk their own lives. They could risk Arthur's job. They could, I mean, like... They're taking responsibility for their education. You know, they're hungry to learn. They're like, let's get to school. I think parents around the country probably wish their kids had this kind of attitude. <laughs> There's something very innocent about it, right? Like, I burnt my hand as a kid pretty badly. And I remember thinking to myself, mom and dad are going to be so mad. And they weren't. And I feel like when you're a kid, your responsibilities are different. And so that frames the way that you respond. Vanessa, let's just anchor ourselves in the text. What's the quote that we're working with here? Yes, this is the moment. Ron says, like, Harry, we can take the car. And Harry's like, isn't this illegal? Right. Harry's about to say he goes, but I thought Ron answers. We're stuck. Right. And we've got to get to school, haven't we? Even underage wizards are allowed to use magic if it's a real emergency. Section 19 or something of the restriction of the thingy. And I feel like that's the moment. There's so much innocence that they think this is a real emergency. They're not like, as McGonagall later says, hey, I have an owl. Let me send it somewhere. Or let me wait 30 seconds for Molly and Arthur to come back through the barrier. Well, so there's a question on responsibility. Why do Arthur and Molly go in first and leave the two kids behind? I agree. I find that to be a troubling line of thinking, though, because as a parent, you want to teach your kids responsibility. So you give them these small opportunities to trust them of not checking if they've brushed their teeth, of whatever it is. And Harry and Ron have gotten through the platform before. Arthur and Molly are more eager to make sure that Ginny is escorted for her first year. This doesn't seem like a ridiculous thing to trust two kids to do. Have they forgotten that these two kids are Harry Potter and Ron Weasley, though? I would I would like to be told about a parent who didn't turn away from their child for a moment. And I'm curious as to what would happen if we felt more shared responsibility. It's impossible as a parent to – you can't have your eye on your kids all the time. And helicopter parenting doesn't create responsible kids. So I feel like Molly and Arthur – this is a reasonable responsibility for them to trust the two boys with, I think. And I wonder, you know, were there other wizards in the station who maybe saw those two boys and they're like, hey, it's past 11. They were probably late. Oh, someone misses the train every year. Like, I'll make sure to help them get to Hogwarts. Here's another question, though. Isn't it the school's responsibility to take attendance on the train? I mean, this is the one way to get to Hogwarts and they're just letting people get on willy nilly. I actually wonder if the real failure and responsibility here isn't with our dear Percy. He's the prefect for Gryffindor House, and we do know that the prefects are the ones who are in charge on the train. And he is one of the older students, and he is supposed to be making sure that all of the Gryffindors are taken care of. And so I wonder what's going on with Percy. It's surprising that he doesn't notice and that he's not being responsible in that way. And is that 
resentment towards Ron and Fred and George and the fact that he always feels like he has to be looking out for his brothers and be his brother's keeper. What is happening there? Because I bet you he has a list of Gryffindors and he has checked those other first years. He's making sure everyone's there and he's like, oh, Ron, Harry, whatever, they'll be fine. You know, he's not going out looking for them, probably in part because he doesn't want to engage with them. I love that you brought up Percy because I really hadn't thought about him here. But what we're seeing is that sometimes responsibilities that we have overlap with Percy personal relationships that we have, and that can get really messy. I definitely think that's true. I think we shirk our responsibilities with the people who we're the closest to. You know, I'm meanest when I'm grumpy to my best friends and my family because you're like, oh, you're going to forgive me. So you let your guard down and you can just be yourself. So you almost become more irresponsible the closer you feel to someone when really you should feel a heightened sense of responsibility for those people. This is particularly interesting later on when the boys arrive at Hogwarts and Snape finds them. And he wants immediately to expel both Ron and Harry. It's like, you've driven a car illegally. You missed the train. Not only that, you've damaged this ancient tree. You've been sighted by muggles, so people are going to have to have their memories obliviated. Total chaos everywhere. And Snape wants to expel them, but he's not allowed to because the boys are not in his house in Slytherin. So they will be dealt with by McGonagall, who's the head of Gryffindor House, of course. And And so there's an interesting thing where through the Hogwarts kind of judicial system, it's designed so that you will not be disciplined by someone who doesn't have a relationship with you. And that's an interesting choice because it suggests more of a sort of restorative justice process, right, where a community amongst themselves figures out what happened, who committed some sort of wrong, and tries to find a solution to it rather than a judge who doesn't know either the victim or the perpetrator and therefore is fine sentencing someone to a couple of years in prison. So do we think that's a good choice? Because Percy fails, but McGonagall, I guess, succeeds. Like, she doesn't even take points from Gryffindor. She just gives them detention. Well, I want to get back to the McGonagall point because I think it's unclear as to whether or not she succeeds. But I want to just talk for a minute about not letting Snape make that call. And obviously, there is a personal relationship between Snape and the boys. But I agree with you that Hogwarts is set up so that the the adult with the strongest buy-in with the student is going to be the one who doles out punishment. And I really like that. And I think it's something that we as a society are very ambivalent about. And I think I just think that this is a really messy thing and we haven't figured out where the where the right moment to intervene is. So on McGonagall, I you know, I think she is a little lenient here. It's great that she gets some sandwiches and that they're fed, of course. But the fact that they have only one detention, the fact that there's no points taken off, I don't know. To me, it seems like the other side of that relational context in that people feel a loyalty to you and then aren't able to uphold the responsibilities that they have. And I mean, that's familiar to me too, right? Like sometimes you love someone a lot and you see that they've done something where you're like, oh, that's not good. And you might bring something up, but you don't confront them in the way that you might confront a stranger to be like, hey, why would you drive like that? You know, if if someone's being particularly aggressive on the road or something. So I think between Snape and McGonagall is maybe the sweet zone that we should be looking for. 
And I think you're exactly right that McGonagall not taking points away is really troubling to me. You know, Harry and Ron go up to the common room and everybody besides Percy and Hermione, of course, are congratulating them on this like grand adventure of stealing a car, risking their lives, risking being found out by the muggle universe, ruining a tree, etc. And I wonder how different the common room's response to them would have been if Before the term even started, they had lost 100 points for Gryffindor, right? Those Gryffindors wouldn't have thought that it was so cool. And I wonder if Harry and Ron might turn out differently and be, you know, a little bit less bold. So actually now I've talked myself into maybe McGonagall does this because Gryffindor is supposed to be for the brave and she's rewarding their bravery even if it's brash. Yeah, There is one moment in this scene where the boys are being berated, which I think illustrates responsibility in another really lovely way. Ron, very unlike himself, perhaps at the beginning of the chapter, is the one to say, hey, let's drive the car, right? Usually Harry is the one who comes up with the crazy ideas. And Ron is impulsive and and makes this decision. And you know what? It works. They get there. So good on Ron. But Ron is so concerned. He's so sure that they're going to be expelled that he says, we'll go and get our stuff in a hopeless sort of voice, he said. And so Ron is the one who takes responsibility for his actions. And McGonagall may be rewarding him for being brave, but I think she might also be rewarding him for being willing to take responsibility for his actions. And this gets so deeply, I think, to the whole question of what is justice about? You know, is it about punishment or is it about helping people recalibrate and move back to living in right relationship with others? And taking responsibility and admitting that you are wrong is a transformational moment for the person who's been the victim. You know, if Harry and Ron had to go outside and talk to the Whomping Willow and the Whomping Willow to be like, look how you hurt me. And for the car to be like, look how I'm damaged. Uh, You know, Harry and Ron would realize the magnitude of what they've done, even in a deeper way than Ron already does. That would just even melt any further issues away, I think. Casper, one more place that I would like us to talk about responsibility is I wonder if Ron would have made a different decision with the car if he hadn't overheard little moments like when Arthur says to Molly, can't we just fly the car? And, you know, Molly, of course, is like, no, it's illegal. It's a terrible idea. People would see us. And I'm wondering if that is like bad modeling for Ron and for the rest of the Weasley kids. I mean, it's definitely giving him permission later on. Like he knows his dad will be just fine. And in fact, Arthur will be just fine. He'll be thrilled. So I think you're right. Arthur is wanting to be responsible by getting there in time, but is really modeling irresponsible use of of something like his magical flying car. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. 
brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who've recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip, and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes, and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. Casper, someone taking responsibility in this episode is Dobby, which is a little bit invisible. But we will find out later that the reason that the boys can't get to platform nine and three quarters is because Dobby has blocked it in trying to protect Harry from going back to Hogwarts. And while I appreciate his sense of responsibility for Harry, which is really lovely given how few people feel a sense of responsibility for Harry – it still strikes me as completely inappropriate and wrong. And I I can't quite figure out why this is irresponsible of Dobby. I feel like Dobby is hitting a lot of my, like, responsibility check marks. right? He's taking responsibility for someone he loves. He's taking responsibility for someone he's in a relationship with. He's talked to Harry about his concerns. His concerns are valid. What about this choice of just blocking Ron and Harry's ability to get onto the Hogwarts Express is irresponsible? I mean, I think the first thing we can say is, like, it doesn't work, right? Harry still still gets to Hogwarts. But I think it's tough to blame someone like Dobby. I mean, he, he has such limited powers, right? He's probably escaped again from the Malfoy mansion. Who knows what risk he's in? This is the third time he's trying to communicate to Harry that Hogwarts is not a safe place for him to be. And so he's, you know, he's doing what he can. And I feel that for Dobby and... You know, for anyone who's disempowered, it's really hard to be responsible because you don't have access to the tools that would help you live out that responsibility. Right. If you're not making enough money, how can you save for retirement? Right. You can't 
blame somebody with limited power for not taking, quote unquote, responsible steps. They are taking responsible steps just within their limited scope. They are making the most responsible decisions that they can, given their circumstances. And that is what Dobby is doing. Yeah, I, th- I think it's tough when we when we blame anyone who is in a situation where, you know, they are doing the very, very best they can. The conclusion that I'm coming to that I I'm really excited about is that I feel like what you've just articulated is an argument for holding people with more power to a higher standard because they have more tools accessible to them in order to enact responsibility. Absolutely. And I think that's why we look at, you know, whether it's elected officials or, you know, leaders in the public in any type who have moral failings. And it's not to say like, hey, I think I'm better than you, but there's a responsibility that comes with choosing to live or stand for office or choosing to live in a public way means that, you know, you're going to be held to a higher standard. And I think that's fair. I do, too. I do want to ask you one more question, Vanessa. Now, Snape is very angry, of course, that the boys have arrived in this fashion and brings them before McGonagall and Dumbledore to say they should be expelled. But I wonder if we're seeing something else in Snape here. We know that Snape, like Harry, wasn't very happy at home and that for him, Hogwarts has always been a really important place, a place where he feels at home in a way that, you know, for many other students, it's just school and it's an adventure. And I wonder for the many years that he's been there now, we know he's quite a solitary character. Maybe he goes on long walks. Maybe he enjoys being outside. Maybe he's passionate about the landscape, perhaps a particular tree like the Whomping Willow. And maybe there's something more than just a distaste of Harry because of, you know, Harry's dad. Maybe there's a real sense of protection for the environment, for the landscape around him. And he's just very upset that it's been damaged. Do you think that's possible? A, I think that that is totally possible. And B, I am curious what you think about the Whomping Willow as a metaphor for Snape. Oh. Because I think we feel comfortable saying that Snake in the zoo and Harry have a real kinship. And I wonder if Snape and this Whomping Willow have a relationship, which we'll find out more about in Prisoner of Azkaban. But is he something that other people use but that when it's attacked, it hits back and it is misunderstood, but actually quite beautiful. That is so cool. Yeah, I can totally see that. People think that it's kind of dark and scary. And, you know, we know that actually inside of Snape is someone who's just hurting a lot and who loves very, very deeply. Um, In The Whomping Willow, we're going to find out, is a refuge. And The Whomping Willow, I really admire that The Whomping Willow is a tree that hits back. It's sort of like climate change or, or, you know, just kind of a landscape or an environment hitting back and saying like, no. You will not treat me like this. (laughs) Like, a little bit. What if the rest of the earth was like, nope, you've used up your water. Sorry. No more. (laughs) Two days, no water. Figure it out. Exactly. Be more responsible with your water usage. And I love that it's a car that flies into the tree. You know, there's there's a man-made object which symbolizes consumption and oil use. And And there is already an environmentally friendly way that the train is getting to Hogwarts. That's public transport, boys. What are you doing taking a private car? Why? At least they're carpooling. That's true. (laughs) They get in the fast lane because there's two of them. (laughs) 
Vanessa, it's our final week of Lectio Divina before we move on to our next sacred practice. Will you find a sentence somewhere in this chapter of The Whomping Willow for us? Yes. The sentence I found was, stars were blossoming in the blackness. Casper, step one of Lectio Divina, what is literally happening in this sentence? So at this point in the story, Harry and Ron are both in the car. They're flying, invisible, it's up in the sky. But this line comes just after they notice that something is wrong with the car and they're kind of pretending not to notice. And it's getting darker outside. And so they're looking out and they can see the stars in the sky as they're they're above the clouds. Vanessa, the second step of Lectio Divina is to look for any symbols or analogies or allegorical imagery that is in this sentence. Stars were blossoming in the blackness. What do you make of it? Casper, what really strikes me is the word blossoming. The idea of stars blossoming is so interesting to me because I think this is being experienced by Harry. It puts the ownership on the stars, that the stars are blossoming. So I feel like in this moment, Harry feels so connected to the sky that there's something more intimate happening between him and the stars than like the stars coming out. You know, Mary Oliver is amazing with sort of mixing metaphors intentionally around flowers in one of my favorite poems by her called Peonies. Rather than saying that the peonies are getting ready to blossom, she says the peonies are getting ready to break my heart. Mm. And I just think there's something really complicated about blossoming, right? As soon as a rose blossoms, it starts to die. What stuck out to you allegorically? Oh my gosh. I love that because of course, often by the time we see a star, it's actually already died. Yeah. This sentence, by the way, is beautiful. Stars were blossoming in the blackness. I also got stuck on the word blossoming. My very favorite poet, John O'Donohue, has this wonderful blessing where he says, may all that is unlived in you blossom into a future graced with love. And I just, I love that because although it's about death, as you say, it's also about life and it's about this birthing and this this something new that's coming up. I also love what you were saying, though, about the fact that this is Harry flying. And we know that when he's on his broomstick, he feels at his most in flow, you know, most intimate. And so here he is kind of enveloped in this darkness, which is not frightening or or scary. You know, he's so at home in this element. And all around him, he just sees this kind of emerging sprinkles of light. Uh, Yeah, it made me think of that poem. So, Casper, now it's time for step three of Lectio Divina. How do you see this sentence in terms of your own life? Vanessa, it's making me think of we've gone night swimming a couple times together. And that experience when you're out, you know, this beautiful pond, it's quiet. Everyone's kind of going to sleep and it's warm enough. So we we go out and as you're in the water, you look up at the sky and it, it's just surrounded by stars. And the darkness of it, the darkness of the water, of the sky, the trees, and yet these little pinpricks through, you know, the ceiling of sky with with little stars out in the distance. I just feel so small. And I wonder if, as well as feeling free, you know, in this moment, Harry feels feels safe, but he also feels kind of small in the magnitude of the of the universe that's out there. That's that's how I feel when I'm in that situation. You know, lying on my back in the water and just you know, just hearing my own breath, some splashing, feeling a deep sense of calm. Um, yeah, that's what this reminds me of. How about you? I'm gonna share that 
memory because I love this annual tradition of ours to go midnight swimming. And what I love about it is, you know, I grew up in pretty rough ocean water. And I have, I like to call it a healthy respect for the ocean. Other people might call it fear. And that comes from the fact that I was wiped out pretty badly once as a kid. And you can get smacked by the ocean pretty hard. And so so those pond swims are so meaningful to me because I feel safe. They're always so pleasant. You know, the water is warm. We're with friends. The sky is so beautiful. And it's a time where nature feels safe. And nature always, right, there's this very fine line where it's foreboding and water, we need water to sustain us, but water can also drown us. And we need the stars for light, but sometimes too much light and you get sunburnt. So how precarious and fine these things are and how safe I feel on those nights where you're with friends and the water is warm and the stars are bright. So Casper, I'm going to read it one more time for our last step. Stars were blossoming in the blackness. So because the fourth stage of Lectio is about, you know, thinking about what the text calls us to do, I feel kind of called to plant something. You know, as everyone knows by now, I'm not very good at gardening and getting my hands dirty in the soil. But there is something miraculous about planting seeds or a bulb, which then, you know, months later, perhaps comes to life and grows and blossoms into extravagant color. And that there's a beauty in even planting a tree now that we won't see into adulthood, maybe ever, that a future generation is the one to reap the rewards of the work that we do now. And I think especially at this time, I feel like, you know, sometimes we're called to do what's hard and what's important, even if we don't get to see the results of it. So maybe I can start with a little bulb that will come to life in the spring. How about you? Casper, I feel the call to see blossoming in unexpected places. You know, if Harry can see blossoming in the sky right when the car is starting to fail him, I think that I can probably start to see blossoming in places that I don't normally look for it. So I really feel called by that word, and I'm going to try to look for it in unexpected places. Casper, after we've had this conversation with Lectio Divina, are you thinking differently about responsibility at all? Is this, did this practice inform our theme for you at all? I think so, because, you know, so far we talked about responsibility as people around us, you know, sometimes in relationships that we have, sometimes to people that we don't know, but who are still here. And just thinking about this idea of, of planting seeds and then coming to fruition many years later, I'm just thinking about the responsibility that we also have for future generations and the way that people who are no longer here took responsibility for us and that there's this kind of chain of responsibility all the way back for generations, which we get to benefit from, but are also responsible for. Well, we're keeping an eye out for each other. Yes, we're keeping an eye out for each other, even people that we will never meet. And that that is a powerful sense of responsibility that I'm excited to to take up more of in my life. Me too. Ah, I'm always amazed at how much we get from that practice of Lectio. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you. This week's voicemail is from Maxine Kabinsky. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name is Maxine, and I am 23, calling in from St. Paul, Minnesota. And 
I absolutely love this podcast and how it calls me to read secular text more critically and with a different awareness of my world, and I do feel like it's made me more aware of my daily actions and the effect that I have on myself and others. I felt called to leave a message with you two today because I felt conflicted about Vanessa's blessing of Petunia. Although I understand a connection and this feeling of you've put so much work into something and it's all falling down around you and you grab the first thing you can find that you think is going to solve or save this moment that is supposed to be joyful for you or is supposed to be, you know, a nice work dinner party that gives Vernon a promotion. I feel that pain for her, but I also feel conflicted about putting a blessing on a woman who, along with her husband, locks a child in a room and treats him like a prisoner, and we actually don't know how long they would have left him in there because Ron rescues Harry. So this brings me to my question for you too. How should we go about blessing bad people? Do they deserve a blessing? Do we have the right to decide who deserves a blessing? Or do we try and bless these bad people for their good moments? Or maybe even not a blessing, but send a prayer for their change and for forgiveness that Harry has for them or for... Um, the pain in their hearts that clearly causes them to be these terrible people to a child. Um, I don't know how I feel about this yet, but I would like to hear your thoughts. Uh, Thank you again, and have a great day. So Maxine, you beautifully said something that a lot of our listeners called me out on, and The truth is, is that I want to be someone who privileges the voices of people who are disempowered and victims of abuse are obviously one of those groups of people. And then I also want to be a chaplain who humanizes the criminals in our lives and who complicates our perceptions of people who abuse and sees people who abuse as people who are also in pain. I feel more okay with doing that in fiction because I'm not absolving anyone. You know, at the end of the day, Petunia Dursley's not real, but we're behaving as if she is. And so I feel very stuck in this. I I want people who are victims of abuse to feel seen and heard in the space of this podcast the way that they ought to be seen and heard in the entirety of their lives. But I also believe that we bless for ourselves. So as an atheist, I don't I don't believe that blessing somebody else actually impacts them, but I believe that it can change me when I bless someone. And I don't know if I overstepped by blessing Petunia in that chapter, and I wonder if I changed myself for the worse by blessing a child abuser in that moment. But I also believe that abusers are often in a lot of pain, and I want to call that out too. So this is an imperfect and complicated answer to a really beautiful and complicated question. But thank you so much for 
giving me the opportunity to think that through more. Yeah, thank you so much, Maxine. That's a big question. And I think the thing that I would want to respond with is that maybe differently to Vanessa, I do believe that giving someone a blessing, especially when you're with the person, can really shape them as well as me. And a blessing is a powerful thing. So we are we are right to think really critically about who do we give a blessing to. My assumption about the world is that there are no good people and bad people, but people who do good things and bad things. And so for me, a blessing is always an invitation and an affirmation of the goodness that is within someone. And yes, Petunia has done unforgivable things, no doubt. She has been cruel and damaged Harry very, very deeply for the rest of his life. But there is also more than that in her. And I think that's what I heard in Vanessa's blessing. And, you know, when I bless Draco Malfoy, that's what I'm trying to call out in him is the part of him that is generous and kind and loving, because I believe that is in all of us. And so it's not easy. And sometimes we're not ready to hear a blessing or give a blessing. But sometimes it's exactly the thing that we need to unlock the piece of us that is dying to get out. So thank you for that voicemail. I, th- I think it's a beautiful, beautiful question. And you asked it so tenderly and with such openness. So I really appreciate that. And I'm grateful for you sending it in. Thank you. Speaking of blessings, Vanessa, it is time for us to bless someone from these pages of the chapter. Who are you blessing this week? I'm going to bless Hermione. I think it takes a really strong friend to tell your friends when they messed up. And Hermione is going against the culture of Gryffindor. Everybody else in that common room besides Percy and Hermione are thrilled with the shenanigans that Harry and Ron got up to. And Hermione's not. And she is not afraid to tell them that she's not. And as we were talking about earlier, when you have a relationship with someone feeling responsible for them can be really complicated. And I really admire Hermione for standing up for her friends, especially when it's clear that she's doing it out of a sense of wanting to protect them. So I would like to bless Hermione for her clarity on what is right and wrong and her strength and conviction and her belief and her willingness to live up to the responsibility of what it means to be a real friend. Casper, who would you like to bless this week? I'm going to bless Harry. For me, the moment when he can't get through the barrier to get to platform nine and three quarters is this really a re-traumatizing moment of being shut off from the wizarding world. You know, it happened at Privet Drive with the bars being put on the windows and his textbooks being put away. And it happened at the station when he can't get onto the platform. And to Harry, this world is a lifeline. And so I want to bless him for, even if he got there illegally, even if he took great risks, the fact that he and Ron got back to Hogwarts and found a way to access a place where they are safe and loved and belong is for me something that's worth blessing and that Harry, who has no parents, who has no siblings, can travel in one magical way or another to a place where he belongs and is loved is something that I I want to bless him for and maybe for everyone who needs to escape to a place away from, you know, the real world every now and then. My blessing is for you. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 6, Gilderoy Lockhart, through the theme of attraction. 
Please make your way to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text to book your tickets to join us for our live show on January 24th. And if you can subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast, it's a great help for new listeners to find their way to us. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook, and email us a voicemail with our new prompt at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is part of the Panoply Network. You'll find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm. We would like to thank Maxine Kavinsky for sending in this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ludley, and Stephanie Paulsell. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is sponsored by... Bly, blub, 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 blub. Is the the insane, ridiculous, insane? I made up that word. Sorry, Vanessa, pull it together. I thought about this chapter in the Chamber of Secrets. Secrets. <laughs> I've got a secret to tell you. <laughs> it survives this crash. It survives. It survives some secrets. <laughs> Isn't it hard? It is. It's like blah 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 blah. <laughs> A blue blah 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 blah. Now I read. I'm Joseph Fink, and I'd like to introduce you to I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, a podcast about the shifting line between artist and fan. When I was a child, reading the authors that I loved and listening to the music that I loved, the thing I got from that is that feeling of being understood somehow, and that weird connection, where it's not the person, it's not the stranger, it's the thing they've made that opens this space for self-reflection. I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.